Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, the Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The recent school shootings in Parkland, Florida, has initiated a public discussion about teacher preparation and training. In short, voices are questioning how to best prepare teachers to respond in life-threatening crisis situations. That dialogue is important, and we will touch on that today. However, it's also part of a larger but perhaps less public discussion about how to best prepare teachers to meet the needs of today's students in the classrooms. My guest today will address those issues and others. Dr. Lynn Gangon is president and CEO of the American Association of Colleges for Teacher Education, or what I will refer to in the interview as AACTE. The association represents more than 800 post-secondary institutions with teacher education programs and is the leading proponent of teacher preparation initiatives in the United States. Prior to her current position, Dr. Gangone served as Vice President of the American Council of Education. She also served as Dean of Colorado Women's College, University of Denver, and has published extensively on topics related to women's advancement in leadership positions in the field of education. Dr. Gangone, welcome to Teaching matters. Thank you so much, Scott. I'm delighted to be with you today. And, and we're excited to talk with you. We've heard about your organization before in a previous podcast, but I think it, it deserves, uh, with you being the president and CEO, uh, after all, to have you give your explanation of what AACT is, AACT is and sort of what the group advocates for. You know, ACTE is a 70-year-old organization. Uh, we just celebrated our 70th anniversary and our 70th annual meeting. And we actually grew out of the uh, state uh, deans and presidents. We actually used to be a predominantly presidential association mm-hmm. and uh, over the years have taken a role of really focusing on colleges of education deans, uh, department chairs, faculty, and those students who enter into our teacher preparation programs. You know, our purpose and scope is truly to elevate the field of teaching and to elevate the institutions that prepare our nation's teachers. Um, And our scope is candidly as wide as that field is. And I think in your introduction, you pointed out the fact that our scope is widening even more as teachers today must uh, prepare for a whole myriad of both opportunities and challenges inside of a changing demography in the United States, inside of changing uh, expectations of teachers, this kind of tension that exists, I think, between teachers going in every day doing good work and how folks think teachers should be evaluated and measured. Uh, So AACTE serves to truly promote the profession. Um, We actually are expert in the preparation of teachers and we are expert in education. Uh, Unlike some people who think that just because you (laughs) went to school, you know how to do this work. Um, We actually talk about pedagogy, we talk about technology, we talk about ways to improve student learning and We work with our institutions to prepare high-quality classroom-ready teachers. You know, I uh, graduated from uh, my undergraduate at Emporia State University in Kansas, which was a former normal Uh school. Um, And do any of those still exist by name out of curiosity? I've never asked anyone that would know the answer to that question, but I, I assume you would know if one did. 
You know, we don't really use the term normal schools anymore. Um, I do, you know, I'm a graduate of Teachers College, uh-huh. Columbia University, uh-huh. and that's sometimes we get about as close as just calling them Teachers Colleges. Yeah. But the term normal school um, is not used currently. Actually, AACTE will be releasing in a couple of months uh, the first, believe it or not, report on colleges of education in the <laughs> United States. And, of course, a part of that report is on the history, which does include normal schools, which mm-hmm. were quite prevalent uh, much earlier in our nation's history. But we will be releasing this report to really shed light on the uh, colleges of education around the country, the students that they prepare, their changing demographics. And, you know, the other challenge that we have, Scott, is that Fewer and fewer individuals are interested in teaching as mm-hmm. a profession and the impact that's having not only on our K-12 schools, but also on our colleges of education. Well, and, and, you know, we'll probably get into this as the interview goes along, but, you know, unfortunately, the way that um, teachers have been um, sort of become a punching bag, um, it's hard to look at the profession in the same way that you did in previous years. In, yeah, in previous generations, it was, it was a, you were prestigious if you were a teacher or you were a principal. Particularly, you know, I recall um, friends of mine who held both roles in, in rural Indiana. Um, in those communities, those educators mattered deeply. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, as time has gone on and, and, and as the challenges to teaching have increased, the profession has experienced decline in in prestige. It mm-hmm. certainly is not one of the better paying fields. Um, and our job at ACTE is actually to address that and to elevate the importance of teachers. You know, we talk a lot in here about the fundamentals of democracy in a democratic society and reflect on some of Jefferson's thinking around education as being you know, really the bedrock uh, of a democratic society. Mm-hmm. And it's our K-12 teachers who are teaching our, our future citizens, our future leaders. I mean, you you started out by talking about the um, shootings in, in, in Parkland, Florida. You know, I was at, I was at the march uh, this weekend in Washington, D.C., and watched those Parkland students get up at the podium and talk about their experiences. I watched students from, you know, Newtown, Connecticut, talk about their experiences. And and individuals from all over the country, students who have experienced violence in, in their classroom and in their communities. And that's where you see, right, the efficacy of the K-12 classroom experience. You mm-hmm. see it in those student citizens. So I'm all for preserving uh, the K-12 system that creates those students and, and the teachers who educate those students. You know, it's interesting because when I was watching the news reports over the weekend um, about the marches, and we had, we had one here in Athens as well, it, I, it struck me that um, I think we're seeing uh, the current generation, and, and you know, you never want to talk about generations in a monolithic way, but 
I think we're seeing more activism uh, in our current students than maybe we've seen before. And I don't know that I would attribute that to any one particular thing, um, but I think you would have to say that the students are starting to get um, a bit more riled up, and rightfully so, about their own lives and their own experiences. And I have to say, as an educator, I'm excited about that. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, on the one hand, it was incredibly sobering. And on the other hand, it was incredibly thrilling. And, you know, later on, after the march, I was uh, in, in another part of D.C., somewhat adjacent to where the march was. And I, I ran into six of the students from Newtown, Connecticut. Hmm. You know, they had been at the elementary school mm-hmm. and then, um, you know, now are, are, are much older and they passed a banner uh, from Newtown to um, the students at Parkland. And, and I saw them and I stopped them and I said, I have to take your picture. I am so impressed with your leadership and I loved the banner. And they said, oh yeah, you know, we just, we just signed that last night. We were so excited, you know. And so here it is, right? Uh, you know, these, <laughs> these kids who witnessed and survived school shootings are giving this banner to the most recent um, mass shooting. And they're all, you know, so out of tragedy, right, comes this incredible enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. It was all about get out the vote. It was all about, you know, exercise your right as a citizen. It and I just, I was so honored to be able to to meet them and, and to take their picture. They were terrific. Yeah, yeah. Hey, um, back to um, sort of the mission of AACTE. When I've talked to uh, our dean of education and, and also read uh, literature on, on your organization, you have a very intentional strategy of promoting what you call clinical practice. Can you explain what that is and, and sort of how it is that you are trying to promote that in, in teacher education programs? You know, the clinical practice work is incredibly important in the preparation of teachers. You know, again, to reemphasize, teaching is a profession. And there is a way that we need to immerse our teacher candidates in the work they are to undertake. And I'd say the old model was kind of the semester-long, you know, student teaching. You go in and out of the classroom. You know, the clinical practice work is about immersion. You know, think about it as... um, you know, not in the same length of time, obviously, but a a residency, right, for uh, an MD or an engineer or, you know, someone who has that professional credential who immerses in the field prior to entering it. So with clinical practice, what it involves is, first of all, and, you know, Ohio University, by the way, does this incredibly well. You have to have incredible, you have to have very strong relationships with your local school districts. There Mm -hmm. has to be a way in which the school district and the university or college have this mutuality and this trust so that you can actually take the students who come, for example, to Ohio University and have them spend at least a year immersed Mm -hmm. in the K-12 classroom prior to actually having that teaching credential. So it's incredibly symbiotic. It is about being immersed in in the classroom learning experience, getting to 
shadow that master teacher, getting to have experience and tutelage under that master teacher to practice the pedagogy, to take all of the things that you've learned in the classroom, right, to take that theory and then apply it to practice. It's about learning learning about the kids and what it's like to lead a classroom and what opportunities and challenges being day-to-day with those children present to you as a teacher. So the clinical practice work is incredibly important to to the profession. It actually um, gives us an opportunity to to really show our teacher candidates the reality of, of the work that they are um, entering into. And in fact, what we know about those students who are able to immerse in a clinical practice is in the long run, it actually increases student retention. You know, it's interesting, Scott, some of the challenge we have in teacher retention or in the teacher shortage is that we have well-equipped, well-educated teachers who lead. Mm -hmm. And there's that spiral that occurs, and we can't produce the candidates fast enough to make up for the teachers who leave. So it's a challenge. The teacher shortage is a challenge, both in interest in teaching as a profession and in retaining those teachers once they have gone through their preparatory program. And what clinical practice does is it increases teacher retention in the long term. Is is three years still sort of the magic threshold at which point many people will either stop or that they will continue on and have some longevity? It's it's somewhere in the neighborhood of three to five years. Yeah. And what we've also found is that the school leadership is a very important piece of that. So the principal plays a very important role in the retention of that teacher and mm-hmm. of that teacher leader. So we talk both about teacher leadership and school leadership. Mm-hmm. But it's about three to five years that are that's a critical inflection point, if you will. How how widespread do you think uh, would you say that the clinical practice has been adopted throughout colleges of education and, and similar uh, types of institutions? You know, it's it's been. <laughs> you're hearing me hesitate because what we know about the clinical practice, and there's agreement among almost all colleges of education that the clinical practice model is the right model. Part of our challenge with the clinical practice model, so say for example, we're not talking about Ohio University, which would have probably what we would consider more of a traditional age, traditional teacher candidate cohort, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? So that student who may be somewhere between 18 and 22 years old, who likely has some form of parental support to attend college, um, is living in the residence hall, right? So, so let's put that student aside, which actually that student represents only about 15% of the U.S. student-going population right now. I don't know if you knew that. Mm-hmm. 85% of the students who go to college right now tend to be a little bit older, tend to be working either part-time or sometimes working full-time and going to school part-time. Um, they are often caring for someone else besides themselves. And so what happens is when you ask teacher candidates who have these myriad of other responsibilities to go into the clinical practice work, it's challenging because we have to figure out ways to help fund them. They actually need to earn a living while they're also preparing to be that classroom-ready teacher. 
And so there's a project actually out of New York City. It's out of the Bank Street College, and it's called the Sustainable Funding Project. And I'll actually be joining them. Um, they've just re- they will be releasing a report that's going to be looking at sort of the funding of clinical practice and teacher residency and showing the kinds of models that can exist to help with this. But sometimes it truly is is a funding issue. Mm-hmm. I will say, though, that our clinical practice report that we just released, which is really focusing on a lexicon or a set of ways in which one describes and uses the, the, the words to describe the clinical practice experience, just came out of AACTE. Uh, we released the full report this January. It was a report that was, I think there were at least 40 individuals from K-12 to education, from higher education, who came together to work on this report. Mm-hmm. And so I would refer our listeners to our AAC, AACTE.org website and for them to just simply put in clinical practice and that report will come up. Yeah, and I, I guess I should mention here, and I'll do it at the end too, that we have a link to uh, the AACT website and the text that's accompanying the podcast. So um, listeners will be able to easily click over uh, to be able to find that information. Hey, bef- before we leave the uh, clinical practice topic behind, um, I want to ask a question that's related to it, though maybe not, not directly. Um, you know, when I've talked with a few other guests about the issue of teacher preparation and, and different, um, you know, techniques or, or philosophies for doing that, the importance of it, that sort of thing, one of the things that comes up in those conversations tends to be about not just the preparation for the um, the types of students that you just described who are going through an undergraduate program to eventually achieve uh, teacher licensure um, credentials, but, but also for teachers who already have those credentials and are at different stages in their career arc. So somebody that is a, a mid-service teacher who's been doing it for 15, uh, 20 years perhaps, somebody that maybe has been doing it for you know, 30, 40, even 50 years. How do you how do you support teachers across their career arc in a way that lets them remain prepared for the classroom? Oof, boy, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say you know let me let me talk a little bit about an institution uh, that I know pretty well, which is uh, Kennesaw State uh, University in Georgia. They have a phenomenal uh, teacher preparation and teacher engagement effort. Um, They do everything from prepare those undergraduate students to then those teachers you described for further education at the graduate level. Mm -hmm. Um, They actually take their resources out into the field. Um, they They have a bus that they travel to rural districts around uh, the state of Georgia to help assist teachers in school districts. They actually partner with school districts to provide state-of-the-art professional development training to those districts. So again, I think that partnership between school districts and the university matters, Mm -hmm. and to the extent that school districts can continue to engage with colleges and universities along that career trajectory allows our colleges of education to enter into those school districts and help with that career arc and that teacher retention. You know, the challenge that we always have is at the point that we turn over that classroom-ready teacher, 
that teacher becomes part of that school district. Mm -hmm. And so to the extent that that school district then chooses to engage with us in higher education, I think can then help us better serve those teachers who are mid-career or late-career. Yeah, I, I, I brought that question up. So I, yesterday I, I took a, a, a two-hour trip up north of Athens into what I would call more central eastern Ohio. Um, my college, which is again is a college of communication, is doing a new project um, that we started this year where we're doing uh, fellowships for pre-K-12 teachers that want to infuse communication education concepts into their courses. And so we, we did the statewide competition for these fellowships, which we awarded nine of them. Um, the teacher gets a stipend, they get a free summer class that, that we're teaching, and they get a um, $1,000 classroom uh, essentially stipend for you know equipment or whatever they need in their classroom. So long story short, um, when we did this contest, it was the first year of it, it was sort of out of the, out of the box. In, in the sense that there was nothing else like it that we could find, certainly in the state, but, but even nationally from a college of communication doing it. And we had um, over, over 35 applicants out of the gate. Um, we could only fund nine of them. Um, but all of these teachers were saying we are, are so excited to be able to engage in learning how to use, uh, not use, but really to infuse new communication technologies like blogging, like what we're doing right here, podcasting, uh, even video editing into courses like literature and English mm-hmm. and and things and reading and things like that. And I just found it really exciting. Um, and the way you described it, Lynn, is exactly what I'm seeing happen where I feel like we in higher education haven't worked hard enough to maintain those relationships outside of the colleges of education. I think that once you get into the disciplines, I think, unfortunately, we've let a lot of those relationships wane um, over the years. And then to see how excited they were, <laughs> you know, that we actually were wanting to work with them. And so I think that I, I, I want to look into what Kennesaw State is doing and, and see that. But, but I think that you're exactly right. I hope that we can find ways that higher education can rebuild those relationships. So let me ask you a question, just because I'm curious. So it isn't typical for a school of communication to go out into working with K-12 to teachers. Is that because you have a really strong relationship with your College of Education dean and there's some symbiosis that happens there from a collegial perspective that then highlights that for you as a communication dean? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So um, I'll, I'll give you three quick answers to that. The, the first one is historical. So you might recall that um, I would say probably until up until about the mid 80s um, in most states that when people got certified to teach uh, speech education is oftentimes what it would be called, they would actually do a majority or at least half of their program inside a speech department at, a, at, right. a, at an institution and then half of their program uh, inside an education uh, college. And that was true, I think, for a lot of the disciplines, but I can only really speak to the speech one. And then when teacher licensure requirements changed in about the mid-1980s, um, a lot of those programs got pulled out of the um, communication departments. So historically, 
we had had relationships with teachers out in the school districts, particularly the drama and um, and speech teachers that were out there. Um, and then when it became language arts, I think that relationship for the most part uh, became somewhat severed. And so historically there had been that relationship, but I think you know um, in, in more contemporary years um, that relationship had not been um, cultivated and maintained. The second thing I would say is that yes, um, in, in, in at Ohio University, although you know we're a large public university uh, with an undergraduate and graduate mission, I would say that it has a feel of a smaller college. And so in that sense, the the ability for deans to work together um, to do initiatives um, is, I think, a lot more possible and and actually it's part of the culture here. And so it was very natural, um, you know, in thinking about ways that I wanted our college to reach out and and knowing that the school districts were a natural partner in that, to do that in collaboration with the Patton College of Education was certainly easy to do. And then the third thing I would say is that my background and training from a scholarly standpoint is actually in classroom communication. So that's why I love doing this podcast. And so, you know, I there was a part of my, you know, scholarly identity um, that always has connected with uh, teachers, not just in higher education, but really at all education levels, because ultimately, um, you know, I firmly believe that teaching is about uh, communication and relationships. And and so that was a part of my orientation personally. And so all of those forces, I think, led me to think that this was something that, um, yes, is unique for a college of communication to do, but one that we ought to be doing. Mm-hmm. That's a great, that's a great narrative. Thanks for letting me hear that. I, uh, I do, I do, <laughs> I, I do think it's sad sometimes that, uh, some of the ways in which we have bifurcated some of the the, the 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 past work that we did and shared through various colleges has now had that you know that schism, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and to the extent that you've been able to really bridge that gap, I think is a great model for other institutions as well. I you know I know when I was a dean at the University of Denver, we we greatly enjoyed our relationships with one another and always looked for ways to actually collaborate. Um, the Mortgage College of Education is the college of education that I served as a um, clinical faculty, clinical mm-hmm. professor in at, at, at the University of Denver. And, um, you know, they also do some incredible work um, in, in the Denver schools, although they are a private institution, right? Mm -hmm, I think it mm -hmm. takes all kind of institutions to to engage in community. Um, So good for you. Thank you. And thank you for turning the microphone around. Um, You're you're really, I think, the first guest that has really done that. So I appreciate that. Um, There's a few other topics I wanted to hit before we start running out of time. So when I was looking at your your Vita, you've you've published extensively on the topic of of women in leadership roles in higher education. Of course, you yourself are are a national leader in this. Um, You know, you've got a big picture perspective on this. How do you think uh, things have changed over time, uh, you know, while you've been in the profession, what do you think still needs to remain uh, to be done uh, to improve uh, the ability for women to, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, to crack the glass ceiling in education and to be in those leadership positions? You know, what's your narrative on where the state of affairs are right now? You know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting time to ask that question. You know, since I've come to AACTE, Obviously, in the role that I have, my focus has been solely on 
teacher education and teacher preparation. It just so happens that I'm actually moderating a panel um, in Denver, Colorado, on Monday evening uh, of three um, women who are leaders in higher education in Colorado. One is the chancellor of a private institution, one is the chancellor of a public institution, and one is what we call the state higher education executive officer. And so my mind is actually on this question of, so so what at this point? Um, you know, I think that right now in higher education, higher education has historically been the place where women have had the largest representation at the CEO level. So the recent study from the American Council on Education shows that 30% now of the leaders of colleges and universities uh, across the country are women. So that's actually good news mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. many say that 30% is a bit of a tipping point. Now, most other industries don't reflect that, and other industries have, uh, other sectors have much further to go. I would say a couple of things. I, I mean, I certainly think that what's been happening recently with the Women's March in Washington back in um, 2017 and the whole hashtag MeToo movement have elevated uh, women's voices in a way that we have not seen previously. I think that's a good thing. Um, I think that women and men need to be part of the conversation. I, When I do this work, I often say to the women in the audience, I'm so grateful that you're here, but really it's the men that I want to talk to <laughs> because men still hold the space to sponsor women. Men still do have, I mean, 70% of the college and university presidents are men, mm -hmm. if only 30% are women. And so I need to make sure that all of you guys are thinking about sponsoring, you know, thinking about that woman when you're at that search committee meeting mm -hmm. and making sure that those pools of candidates really represent not just gender diversity, but racial and ethnic diversity, mm -hmm. right? Only 17% of the women who serve as college and university presidents are women of color. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, we need to think of the gradations of who we're, we're inviting into the leadership space. One of the things I always ask is, you know, who's not at the table mm -hmm. and how do we get them there? And then how do we keep them there? Um, I do believe that higher education leadership teams function much more effectively and are richer when you have a variety of people around the table who have different lived experiences. And I think it brings a richness to the leadership portfolio of any institution. So I'm, of course, a big fan of bringing more women in. I'm also a big fan of bringing more men in who understand and appreciate the, the importance of diversity and inclusion um, mm -hmm. in their leadership teams. So I'm 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 pretty passionate about diversifying leadership in general, and obviously because of my past research and work of looking at elevating women and all women, not just Caucasian women, but women of color mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Well, we certainly want you to keep up the fight on that. It's you know it, it's. It's, it's, it's obvious when you look around the country that there's still work to be done, despite the fact that there have been gains. And so you can't stop, you can't keep your foot off the gas pedal on, on this issue of diversity and inclusion, but particularly in leadership positions. I totally agree. Um, 
we're going to run out of time in just a few minutes. So I want to circle back to the hard topic of school violence and school shootings, um, just because it's timely and you're someone that has a perspective on it. I really enjoyed your narrative about being at the march. I, I read a press release from the AACTE that you all released um, after the Parkland shootings. And these, these statistics astonish me every time I see them, either in something like your press release or a news report. But since 2012, as you noted, which was the Sandy Hook elementary shootings, there have been 239 school shootings with 438 people shot and 138 people killed. This is, you know, unquestionably, and in, in you're in my lifetime, one of the most astonishing changes in, in, in school settings that this is now a thing, right? I mean, you and I worried about bullying on the playground, and, and now our children are worrying about being shot. Um, so this is astonishing to me. I think it is to all of us. What What is the position of AACTE on how to best prepare teachers in this climate? I think that, you know, obviously you can't prepare them for the unthinkable, but but you kind of have to. And so, what you know, what, what are the roles that you all are taking in leading dialogue on this at a national level? That's, that is both a very good question and a very difficult question, as you know, Scott. And I think you eloquently stated the challenge. I mean, the fact that we've gone from bullying to worrying about whether our children will actually come home alive is is a vast change in what anyone should have to worry about mm-hmm. and certainly what our kids should have to consider. We, um, we keep talking about preserving the sanctity of the classroom, and we are in the process of rolling out a... Um, a school safety communications plan and looking at um, how do we assist our educator preparator institutions on the issue of school safety. Um, We'll be rolling out this plan over the next um, few weeks. Um, We are working very closely with our board of directors to make sure that we are hearing from all of those institutional representatives in terms of their thinking on the issue. Um, We have been engaged in a number of efforts already um, from looking at releasing that statement. Certainly I did a video message to all of our members. Um, We released some blogs today um, with regard to school safety. We'll be creating webinar video series to help our institutions. We are going to facilitate, we have something called topical action groups where our members gather around a specific topic, not just to discuss it, but to take action. And so we're going to be developing a topical action group on school safety instruction. Um, we are going to look to commission uh, a research study on school safety curricula. We plan on having virtual town hall meetings as well as Twitter chats and hashtag feeds that look at this. Um, we want to, we also have gosh, nearly, I mean, we probably have about 45 state chapters around the country. We want want to engage them in the work that they're doing. We've actually been contacted um, by some of the national media to highlight some of the efforts our institutions are engaging in and preparing our teachers for um, this kind of a, a classroom environment. I mean, I could I could go on and on at this point, so stay tuned. But we yeah. definitely are looking to build. Uh, candidly, we're looking to build a portfolio of service to our member institutions to assist them with this. 
Um, we have uh, we have experts that we've been talking to uh, that deal with trauma in the classroom, and we will likely be bringing on some of those experts into the AACTE space to be resources to our members. Um, those are just some of the things that we are talking about and putting into action as this challenge to all of our schools around the country unfortunately continues to unfold. Well, it uh, you know, it certainly sounds like your portfolio is going to be comprehensive and 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 there's there's no simple solution because if there was we would already have it and and it gives me um you know, I'm really happy to hear you describe all of the efforts that you're quickly trying to put into place because we we obviously have to have everyone doing everything possible uh, to be able to combat this. And, and the plan that you articulate, I, I hope to hear back from you sometime about how, you know, those plans are unfolding because we have to have this remain not just a part of the public dialogue that goes on, you know, when we turn on our television sets, but it has to be remained part of the dialogue you know, at the school level, at the district level, at the state level, um, so that we continue talking about this because it's such a essential issue. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that things that we can do inside of educator prep programs and things that we can do in collaboration with school districts can really inform the public about how do we manage trauma in other spaces. I mm-hmm. mean, we are educators and we have the capacity to learn and to teach and to share that knowledge. And so we're looking to be leaders in the school safety conversation. That's great. I'm happy to hear that. And congratulations on um, the work that you've already done. I know that you you have been a national leader on so many topics, but I know that you're taking this up, uh, and, and I think we're in better hands because of that. So, uh, Dr. Gangone, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been great getting to meet you, uh, and I hope that as you have various initiatives that AACTE undertakes, uh, especially when you release that report, I'd love to have you back on to talk about it. That would be great, and you need to just call me Lynn. You know, my students used to call me Dr. G, but uh, I didn't call you Dr. Titsworth, so you don't get to call me Dr. Gangone anymore, because now we're friends because we bonded during this podcast, and I appreciate being asked to be a part of it. Thank you. Sounds great, Lynn. Lynn, uh, and I will not I, I will just say Lynn is president and CEO of the American Association of Colleges for Teacher Education, uh, or AACTE. The link to AACTE's website is accompanying the link, um, uh, the, the text accompanying this podcast. The link is embedded within that so you can easily click over and learn more about many of their initiatives. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at wob.org backslash listen. We're also available through several popular podcasting apps including Google Play, iTunes, and NPR One. You can contact staff of the podcast with ideas, questions, or comments through our Facebook page. Simply go onto Facebook and search for Teaching Matters Podcast. Uh, Our audio engineer today is Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titsworth, your host. It's been great having you listen, and thanks for coming out. 